today's show, Neil and Dario discuss British social realism now. They look at a spate of recent films which suggest a re-emergence and an evolution of that classic British form, the socially realist drama. They are joined by filmmakers Henry Blake, whose debut feature, County Lines, is in cinemas around the time of the release of this episode. And also Sarah Gavron, who directed the recently acclaimed and currently screening on Netflix teenage drama, Rocks. They also spend some time talking about films such as Faisal Boulifer's Lynn and Lucy, which appeared on a recent episode, and also and they never need an excuse to do this, Mark Jenkins' Bait. Elsewhere, Neil confuses The Long Good Friday with The Long Goodbye, so look out for that. And Neil and Dario are awed, dumbstruck, and spend some time sitting with Steve McQueen's magnificent Lover's Rock. On with the show. Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Dario Linares. And of course, my good friend is with me, Neil Fox. Neil, happy Friday afternoon. How are you? Very pleased it's Friday. I never thought we'd be one of those people, <laughs> but I am delighted that it's Friday. How about you? Yeah, exactly the same. We both came on Zoom a minute ago and it was just kind of like had that hangdog look about us. It. It's like, oh, we we need to get some pep into this uh, social realist conversation. Mind you, it might it, it might kind of correlate with the mood of social realism to be slightly downbeat but you know i don't think that's in our that's not our bag is it you know we like to inject some some vim i think yeah we like to kind of mix up the genre rather than just play straight so we will endeavor to be passionate and incisive yeah. and upbeat about a, a slew of films that are you know dealing with very difficult and depressing uh, scenarios <laughs> yeah it's it, it's true but i mean well i mean we'll definitely get into that so you know the the episode generally we're, we're calling British social realism now, and we're going to talk a lot about um, different kinds of films. But there's two films that we're centering around, and we'll come to them in a second. But Neil, uh, I wanted to ask you actually about had you caught up with Small Axe Part Two because we had a chat about um, the first part, Mangrove, on our bonus episode, and I saw Lovers Rock earlier early on in there. In fact, I watched it the day after it came out so it must have been monday and i i remember i texted you didn't i and i said you are gonna love this and i was just like oh am i that predictable and i, and I was like well no i don't think you are but i know that you're gonna love this so am i right or wrong oh no you're right yeah i mean i, I think <laughs> yeah, i think there's a predictability to to that that is well earned um yeah no i, I saw it i saw it wednesday and i watched it in a double bill with the 2011 documentary, The Story of Lovers Rock by uh, Menelik Shabazz. And yeah, I just, what a, what a, what a thing it is. Like just, yeah. yeah. 
just absolutely glorious i thought you know and yeah 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 just it made me happy it made me smile i kind of in awe of just the i was talking to hope dixon leach yesterday and we were talking about and i just said this the, the kind of the balls of it you know like what a ballsy way to tell a story just these long sequences of just watching people have a good time and connect it was just absolutely magnificent um yeah just yeah but then also sort of every little relationship and interaction had a story to tell you know whether it's a story about the, the basis of people being with each other and whether that's love or sex or violence or you know just sort of defining being in the world by being with others and all all kind of built on this love and 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 you know fundamental defining principle of of music and not even music's too simple it's almost kind of just sound isn't it you know that 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 way that that it that it it laid a canvas for everything on 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 top of it and 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 the sound part even right to the very end where one of the characters kind of changes accent because he's talking to a white guy who who is his boss and it's just that you know and, and everything against you know, heavy, heavy, heavily accented obviously but that sense of what that told you about politics and culture and identity was just so profound and you didn't have to explain anything you just knew what was being articulated there in you know not just in the voice but in the, the politics of it yeah and i think often because of because of who tells those stories i think representations of black music and that idea of the role that music plays in black communities dating back to you know kind of spirituals and the blues it can often seem quite trite you know and quite kind of adding this quite superficial layer on you know this kind of hero narrative of these these great people who soldiered on with song but you know there's it's kind of undeniable if you read about the histories of of, of kind of black communities and how they communicated and kind of kept themselves safe through music and you know in terms of their their identities and then it that was so obvious in terms of how this film played out you know um and how the music created this safe space mm. i mean just the the acapella sequence and then the dub sequence and just the safety of yeah just the kind of the the, the emotional nakedness of all those all those people was just absolutely astonishing you know and uh, but it, it felt completely real it, it felt like oh we're, we're seeing what yeah we've read about you know in a few places but to, to see that you know kind of on on the bbc in 2020 felt you know really really powerful um yeah just so so privileged to kind of to just have yeah. just access to that yeah. turn on the telly and see it um for sure and i really enjoyed like reading ashley clark's tweets on it as well and he had this long stream about how his his dad was arguing with his friends over it about how authentic it is and on the one hand he was sort of a bit disappointed that they were that they were sort of talking about you know whether that would have would have happened back in the day in that way and but on the other hand the idea that there was the opportunity to talk about the, the sort of you know the blues club or the you know the the that experience that that was so sort of central as an underground culture mm -hmm. and and uh, something that brought them all together in terms of recognition of it being outside of what 
mainstream culture kind of allowed them to do, I suppose, is, is the way of putting it. Yeah, I think it definitely felt like an extrapolation of a series of knights into one kind of yeah. representation. Uh, but it was really interesting watching it straight after the dock and seeing how, you know, even the, one of the first things they say in the dock is about the paraffin heater before going out. You know, that everything happens around the paraffin yeah. heater, the hair, the food. And then literally the first thing you see in McQueen's film is the paraffin heater as the girls are getting ready, you know, and you're just like, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and everything they're talking they were talking about when they were recollecting in the dock was represented in the film. It felt what was interesting was that there was more kind of Jamaican lovers rock as opposed to British lovers rock music wise, which was quite interesting. Mm. Um but uh and the the dock's well worth watching. It's on Vimeo, you can you can rent it on there. Um for how you know and i think that's what was great about it was you felt it was a british thing you know that it was it was that music and those parties were were very british because of the situation for particularly caribbean immigrants and their families in in london and, and sort of other cities at the time um and just to hear that music kind of in that way was yeah just fantastic and yeah the, the like, well, i think this is what we'll probably talk about a lot today and interesting film in that context is that is it the is it the facts that are truthful or is it the feeling and the representation and the what's being said that, that, that is kind of approaching some kind of honesty and truth that's, that, that kind of shines through rather than whether it would have happened in, in that order. And there was an interesting thing about time, which we might not get to today, but it felt like the, the, the time of the night and across the mm. night was really interesting in terms of when, when things happen in the space between things to convey this sense that it was a remembered thing and a felt thing rather than a, a literal thing yeah you've you, you've you've hit on the segue I, I was going to make which is you know that sense of how do we define realism and what is realism as a construct that binds together reality and representation do you know what i mean so i would obviously that that ties into what we want to speak about today and and yeah that 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 legacy, I suppose, of British social realism, or a you know, we'll talk about a definition of it. But we've got two really interesting interviews coming up on the show, and the first one is with Henry Blake about his new film, which is coming out this week, County Lines. So Neil, you set that up, yeah? Yeah, we got asked again, and uh, you know, to to see the film and, and talk to Henry, and it was a film that I kind of heard a little bit about, and was interested to talk to him about it after seeing it, really, and thinking oh, actually after what we were talking about with Lynn and Lucy and where this sort of um, this episode sort of came from, it felt like there was, there would be a conversation worth having, I think, because I think it's a really interesting film, particularly in how it portrays visually this story, um, which is about County Line's kind of drug trafficking and drug movement in, in the sure. UK and how it impacts young, impressionable, vulnerable children, um, you know, in a very, a very direct and kind of meaningful way so that provided something to really kind of hang the the episode on it's been something that's been bubbling away and uh, yeah really really interesting interview with with henry which i hope people enjoy and then it sort of tied in with you just seen the other film that we were we we're going to be talking about and you wanted to speak to that filmmaker and you managed to make that happen as well so yeah i spoke to sarah gavron who's the director of rocks and a, a filmmaker who, who whose previous film suffragette we talked about as well in the interview but Again, a huge film which I hadn't seen. I hadn't really, I don't think I'd really comprehended who was in it. You know what I mean? And you know, it's Meryl Streep, Helena Bonham Carter, um, Kerry Mulligan is in the lead about you know about the suffragette movement, um, and particularly sort of leading on to the denouement of the um, the moment when one of the protesters 
dies by throwing herself in front of the the king's horse at the derby which is a you know a very famous event and and also a famous piece of footage so see that to see that fictionalized um was very interesting so we talked a little bit about that but then we got onto um rocks which was the sort of main obviously the main focus of what we were talking about and yeah lots of similarities you know slight differences but similarities as well so it's about children it's about the 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 social experience um related to institutions particularly school and then and then kind of social work um, social workers who are you know on the one hand trying to do do the best to look after children or or, or deal with children that, that have found themselves in certain situations but then the, the ways that the particularly the, the the lead character in rocks has to deal with her relationship with her mother and her sister and what was interesting to me, and I really want to talk about this, is about how both films, the, the, the children, have to adapt to fend for themselves in the world. And I think that's a really interesting element of social realism that I think is part of, if we're going to talk about a, a, a new wave or a new iteration of, of British new wave films, and we can argue whether that, that is true or not, that it seems to be focused a little bit on that. And I love how that ties in, I think, to a lot of what is going on in society in terms of that that lording of entrepreneurialism and the sort of darker aspects of that which i think are, are really interesting so yeah two two great interviews to come but very i just thought maybe we could start off with a with a discussion of of where we both come from on in terms of social british social realism i mean i don't know like like maybe like you going through film education it, it was a sort of staple thing that was studied at university and and the the kind of development of it in terms of you know going back to the sort of British documentary tr tradition and Michael Balkan and, and Humphrey Jennings and that sort of sense that there's a tie-in with the observational style of documentary which is about this idea of you, you know trying to negate the directorial intervention to to let the the images speak for themselves and maintain like as I say this sense of a, a fundamental connection between reality and representation and that's where kind of the notion of realism in the broadest sense sits but then how that has been connected to British film identity but also sort of British national identity are all, all things that, that you kind of study I think as a starting point at, at university in the UK for sure. Yeah I think yeah I think what's interesting about it is you know th this idea of why Particularly, you know, documentary aside, you know, that kind of 50s and 60s British New Wave and why that was considered realism, you know. Yeah. Um, and I've always thought that what's interesting about that kind of about British cinema before that is that it's not really a British cinema in in the way that that then sort of became a British cinema. What I mean by that is that both America and the UK kind of started with adaptations of kind of canonical literary and theatre text, you know, so sure. lots of Dickens, lots of Shakespeare, lots of period drama stuff. So, and that kind of stuff, although we've got a very long tradition of period drama, seems to sit above British, you know, it feels like it's not British, it's kind of the world's, you know, Dickens yeah. is a kind of global, a global text in that sense. So by the time that the, the angry young men and women arrive on the scene, and they do, it feels so radically different that, it, it, realism is what it is and it's it's it is the people that have not been on screen before apart from in documentary sure. you know they've, they've not been narratively represented in that way it has been manor houses and 
you know, repressed yep. urges. And then you get people like Peter O'Toole and Albert Finney completely unrepressed, you know, and it's such a yeah, yeah, it's such yeah. a stark contrast. And that sort of sets the template for what things look like, which is a almost a reaction to what you know, to the, the kind of the upper class stately representations. But yeah. and that that seems to have had a hold where like that's how we define it. And then obviously interestingly in the kind of the eighties and nineties and onwards if it wasn't you know strict social realism in that sense it was stuff that was kind of aping american you know genre stuff you know think of the work of mike figgis or something like alan parker you know there's mm. definite kind of slick genre feel to all that stuff you sure. know long, long goodbye you know leaning to kind of 70s crime films and what i think it's always just been the thing where it looks like it looks like something that could only have come from this country in terms of the, the match of the stories and that kind of like reductive grainy handheld or very static long you know council estate shots and um that that it's for the me, correlation isn't it of the yeah. two of the of the content and the form seeming to fit together and the, the the content is very much shining a light on on social class and alienation and frustration and fighting the system and fighting all of this this sense that that britain is kings and queens and shakespeare and you know that's where the sort of politics of class come into it with with like the, the work of Carol Rice and Tony Richardson. Yeah, no, so I, one of my favourite films of all time is still Saturday Night and Sunday Morning. And you know, maybe younger listeners won't know that history of Albert Finney. You know, who is kind of an interesting character in his later years, but was sort of absolutely fundamental as as a character then. And it's interesting. I mean, yeah, because I don't, I didn't. I didn't necessarily make that connection to those sort of genre films that you're, you're talking about there, but yeah, that's definitely your sort of, I can see how you would make that connection. But then you get to, you know, with the, for me, the eighties and nineties, you get that association, I think with, with Ken Loach and Mike Lee, who become sort of synonymous as the DNA of, of British social realism. And, and even, I think, you know, you, you have to acknowledge the relationship to television here. So, so a lot of the writers came from TV Kathy Come Home was, of course, I think you know a TV film, really. In many, in many, well, it was aired on TV. Yeah. Definitely a cinematic film. Abigail's Party uh, with Lee as well. Yeah, yeah, ex exactly. And you know that, and I suppose there's that question again, back in the day, as to how significant film was or could be in terms of shining a light on political issues and having an impact. But then that TV element also feeds into, you know, it feeds into popular cultural soap operas like coronation street and eastenders before well eastenders before it went all guy ritchie has it gone guy ritchie i didn't know that daria <laughs> well it, did, it did. did for a while you know it was all geezers and murders well, and stuff know. for a while i haven't no. watched it in years yeah. but i know that happened. yeah and i think i think that's interesting the mike lee thing is is you know is because the first the first film of his that i remember was naked and just being kind of blown away and oh, um yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. still think it's a, a remarkable piece of work but I remember when we talked about this, the last time we probably talked about this was when Life is Sweet was released on Blu-ray and we rewatched that and it was like, actually, this doesn't feel like social realism now at all, you know, because I think that the sh mm. we, we've, we're so, we're so yeah. far removed yeah. from it that and sure. and there are so many more examples of it that, that, that you can sort of see that really spiky, satirical, you know, kind of stylized thing that he was doing there. That, but, but at the time it was like, yeah, obviously this is... And again, I think a lot of it is to do with who's on screen that's you know and, and who who's whose stories are these and, and have we seen them before um which is why i think it's a really interesting time because i think that while while a lot of the stories are 
you know stories that we haven't necessarily seen before there feels like there's less of an interest in aesthetically mining a, a, an old ground it feels like that the but I think a lot of that has again to do, which I'll sort of come to later, is that that seventies and eighties genre, genreization, if that's even a word, of British cinema. Yeah. Tell, that, tell it's Friday afternoon. I'm making up words like that. Um, you know, <laughs> that feels much more prevalent alongside the kinds of stories that that, that Lee and Loach were were kind of synonymous with, which I think why it's an interesting time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and 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 it's never really gone away because I think that it. Because of the possibilities of shooting low budget, and it's kind of ingrained in the aesthetic, isn't it? I don't want to say cynically, but it does provide an entry point for British filmmakers to get stuff made. And there's always, I think, been that sort of element of it. It's a recognised framework within which we can make something that will be associated with names that we've just we've just mentioned there. So it allows filmmakers to be able to get into the industry and and fit themselves to a to an already laid out kind of language, I suppose. But then at the same time, you know, the 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 sense of the sense of kind of social context and social problems and social issues remain the same and perhaps are even more stark when thing when one thinks of social and economic stratification. And it's funny how, you know, there's hybridizations, as you said. I mean, like I remember back in the day when the Full Monty came out, which is definitely a kind of hybrid comedy that which utilizes the tropes of social realism to a more populist end. And you think of films like Brassed Off and Train Spotting, and then into the 2000s, Bullet Boy and Fish Tank and The Selfish Giant. They're all kind of what I would say are key films from people who teach cinema, you know what I mean? And we, we've talked to those to those directors, you know, in very luckily in various capacities during during the time that they're released and they've, they've come to the university and talked about them. So that it is there and it always has been there. But yeah, it's interesting whether now sort of, again, in the coinciding with what's gone on in the last year, six months, whether the the streaming era provides another impetus for, again, a new, another wave of, of British social realism to, to emerge. And I think the sort of films that we've, we've seen over the last few weeks and months, you know, could, could, could point to that. Yeah, but I think what's also interesting in that sense, and it might be, you know, with streaming being a big part of everybody's kind of arsenal um, that's, you know, that, that's kind of still um, distributing, you know, people like Curzon and things like that, is I think that, you know, Bait, Lynn and Lucy, um, Rocks had a bit of funding from them, uh, County Lines, Mogul Mowgli, all distributed by the BFI, which I think is telling because that's, that's the body along with Channel 4 that was associated mm-hmm. with all that stuff. And it feels like they're getting back in the... The social realist game, which I think is interesting in terms of yeah. you look at look at that body of work in the last year or so since they released Bait, and that's quite telling that they're that they're putting distribution weight both by putting them in cinemas when they're open, but also pushing them on their platform and saying that these are the kind of the BFI releases in a way that's not been seen for a while. A lot of the other stuff that you sort of mention in that in that gap has come from lots of different mm. places, you know, Vertigo or you know Studio Canal or whoever was you know metrodome when they were around you know there's lots of different but but it feels like now there's more of a state push to you know state funding to say actually you know this is what british cinema is and whether that's because they see it as a very direct lineage of social realism or whether they see like we might that there's more stylized hybridity going on i don't know but uh, i think it's interesting that they're involved in all those films in some way 
Yeah, and maybe that maybe again, there's a strategic decision to sort of realize, okay, what can we do in the next three or four years? It, you know what I mean? It, 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 because you look at the way in which even before COVID, British talent ha- is going abroad, and there's always a kind mm. of lament about that. You know, going to America ostensibly, and then you look at the the popularity of, of films that are coming from or winning prizes, let's say, in Europe, you know, like the Darden Brothers stuff and Alice Rohrwacker, who is not, you wouldn't sort of say socially realist, cause, but there's a poetic realism going on there. And these films are hard hitting and, you know, doing well on the festival circuits. Now, and maybe there's an acceptance that, that we are in a two-tiered system. So those films are never going to make the money of you know the films that we all know about that are making are making the money but there is a sort of there is enough of an audience and enough of an interest to to for them to to st- sustain themselves at the ver- at the very least yeah i think and i think that's interesting that kind of that talent retention plan you know i think because it's it's always been traditionally america that's taken the talent um but there's it's always been a, a, at a remove and i think that one of the things that's changed particularly with netflix coming on board is that it's just a global thing now and i think that maybe there is a netflix thing that they think actually we're going to lose these filmmakers to streaming and maybe part of the the desire to keep british films in cinemas is is like you say is kind of retain you know that would be great if that was the case because i think that's that's kind of really important and that's really interesting in terms of the types of films that they've backed in the last 18 months or so to suggest that it's not going to be the same old filmmakers that are going to get that opportunity which i think is yeah not thought of that Mm, interesting so let's get into our first interview yeah which is with one of those filmmakers this is me talking to henry blake about his film county lines and in true social realist fashion there is someone banging on a wall throughout the entirety of this uh interview uh next door so apologies for some of the sound issues in this interview um yeah diy next door was the culprit yo your chips man Oh, I literally what? just bought... I said, shut up, fam. What are you doing? Huh? Check your back. Oh, I was only joking with him, man. You all right? Yeah. I used to work for some older guy when I was your age. Running errands, things like that. I had to be the man of the house. Help my mum out. Bye, kids. Bye. I'm the man of my house. Talk to me, T. What's up? How are things at home? That's what being a man's about, dealing with stress. And you deal with stress. Yo, it's Jim's line. We've got that crack cocaine, heroin. We've got everything there, so you need to send a text as quick. Do you have any idea what you have to do to get that money? The risks that are involved? Tony, you gotta wake up. You need to stop lying. Where do you go? Somebody needs to look after this family. Some businesses have what they call an acceptable loss. You know what the acceptable loss for your business is. You. Thanks for talking to me about the film. No worries. Glad that it's coming out, hopefully, in the next couple of weeks. It's coming out, yeah. Exciting, exciting. Yeah, December the 4th. 
Great. Um, so this is uh, this is going to be in an episode with. We've also got an interview with Sarah Gavron, um, and we're going to be talking about well, kind of loosely sort of British social realism um, now, because I think it's just a chance to talk about a lot of different films, of which yours is one, which is a kind of I think an interesting moment for what might loosely be termed social realism, and obviously we know that there's problems with that term, and we're kind of that episode will kind of go into what that might mean but also what a lot of these films are doing differently um and i think your film does a lot of lot of really interesting things um with the kinds of stories that we're expecting to see you know in terms of um sort of youth in britain um you know uh life in london um kind of families and things like that um which i was looking to talk to you about but i guess we'll just start with how the project came together and your sort of background as a as a youth worker and how that kind of fed into making the film. Um, yeah, so I've been a youth worker for 11 years in London and that has very much been like one side of my life and then the other side of my life was developing my skills as a filmmaker and Victoria uh, Bavister, who's my wife and the, who produced the film, we have like for the last 10 years just consistently made short films um, and then, you know, we would do like that and then I would go and do my youth work <laughs> um, and I was never, I was keeping it very separate um, purely because I think like what I was dealing with in my youth work was really heavy and really um, quite, uh, you know, tough stuff, you know. Um, but in 2015, I was asked by a colleague of mine to come to um, a PRU, a PRU in East London, and uh, work with two groups, and one group in particular were being trafficked and kind of really heavily exploited by County Lines criminal networks. And up until that point, I had dealt with, within the social care sector, some pretty standardised issues, which would be you know, extreme poverty, neglect, um, uh, child sexual abuse, physical abuse, domestic violence. But I had never actually had in the room children who were being trafficked by County Lines criminal networks. And I just had that instinct as a filmmaker where I just went, I can't walk away from this. You know, and I knew... I knew that I had an opportunity to say something um, very authored and uh, I guess relatively unique because of my experience. And I think certainly with a first feature, you kind of need to be bulletproof with your subject matter. You kind of need, because you're going to get so many no's anyway, that I needed to be bulletproof where, where no one could kind of say, well, that's not true. You know, yeah. and and that's where I knew that my youth work experience had come to a point where it was it was kind of bulletproof. And uh, and certainly from a filmmaking experience, I was then at a point where I think my skill set could handle and approach that subject matter sufficiently. Yeah. Were, were, so were there occasions where you're you're having to kind of tackle the authenticity in order to make the film work? You know, because obviously, like the the narrative needs its own things in a way that sometimes kind of clashes with tr uh, real life. Yeah, I think so. And and you know, I was I always approached it like a film as well. You know, what like cinema is is boiling things down to their essential 
sort of atomic level ingredient, isn't it? And I was also very clear that I wasn't making this as an internal safeguarding community film, of which there are many, and some of them are fabulous, but I was making this for a general audience. Mm. Because from my perspective, public awareness and outrage, if you like, hasn't developed to a point where there has been sufficient intervention of the issue. And so you need, I needed to create a piece of cinema that got under people's skin who had no idea what was going on. Mm. Which kind of, I guess, I think brings us on to the kind of the filmmaking style of the film, um, mm -hmm. which is really striking. Um, one of the, you know, one of the accusations that's kind of levelled at some films is, is, you know, what's crudely termed sort of poverty porn. And obviously your film is not that at all, but it is, I found it really stylized and I found it's a film that kind of is almost shot like a, like a Nicholas Winding Refn crime movie, you know, that there's a, there's a, there's a real stylization to these spaces, which kind of make them ni nightmarish. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the kind of those influences and, and where you kind of drew from to, to kind of create the atmospheres of the film. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really great observation, first of all, because um, I never set out to make a social realist drama. I think one of the reasons why it might feel like that is purely because of my youth work experience and my awareness of the authenticity within the material. But when it came to authoring and executing the, the sort of more cinematic, uh, artistic philosophy of the film, you know, I was very clear with everyone from the very beginning that I didn't want to make a movie about this film. I wanted to, in essence, create a visual document. And within that visual document, have deeply evocative and emotional performances that had a great subtlety about them. Um, and so that approach takes you down a different road already. And... I've always been, as has my cinematographer been, influenced by um, cinema, uh, photography. So Nan Golden, uh, a British photographer called Hannah Starkey, um, Masahisa Fukasi, who did an amazing book, The Solitude of Ravens, um, William Eggleston. And the goal with approaching the material like that was to kind of... Um, enhance the portraiture nature of 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 the characters and of the, of the locations um and then at the same time try and let sphere the cinematographer really unleash his sensibilities on the material you know i'm really big on that on allowing heads of department say what they want to say with it and i think a lot of what you pick up there is his natural sensibilities trying to sort of push the material um, and create a different type of tone. Um, but yeah, it was all photographic, all photographic. Even the aspect ratio, which mm. is um, one five one, is the aspect ratio of a true thirty five mil stills photo camera. Mm. So these choices were really deliberate and very premeditated. Yeah. And one of you've got this amazing location in the flat, you know, which and and it creates this split screen effect where you've got the kind of the maternal, you know, the kind of the 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 looking after the family kitchen on one side, and then you've got the the kind of the living relaxation space, and it creates this 
it just creates this split in the family and in the roles that they all have to take at different times. Um, it just works so effectively. And I wondered if that was, you know, was that something you were looking for or was that something you, you, you realised when you found it, this is this is something that's going to gonna do that thing which you're saying, which is it, give you that feeling when you watch a photograph of, of the composition and what the composition is saying. Um, everything that you see in the film is from a from an architectural and from a geographical point of view is deliberate is premeditated so the choice of the flat was 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 led by a concept that i spoke at length with that with sphere is this family is compartmentalized so we need to find a a visual way of getting that across and often concepts like that can just remain in notebooks but that's where you have to be quite um, diligent and relentless when looking for locations that actually are in line with your artistic philosophies. And so this whole idea about compartmentalization, and then finally at the end, once there has been resolution, they're sat around a, ta a table and those walls have gone. Mm -hmm. And so the flat, we saw many flats, many of them were great, but they didn't directly stay in line with that philosophy. And it wasn't until we met one where the left and the right were perfect, where the sense of claustrophobia was perfect and where Sphere had enough latitude with his lights to create something naturalistic, but very photographic. That's when we, that's when we knew that was the right location. But again, it's a very good question, Neil, because I think sometimes people might think that a lot of that is by accident or by chance. In actual fact, in the writing of the film, there was already at such early stages with the heads of department, the, these philosophies were being discussed. Yeah, and yeah, it's 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 just fascinating because I think that there's a there's a there's a stylized naturalism to the film which makes you question, you know, but also knowing knowing the reality of of kind of independent filmmaking, where in the process you you can do those things. So it's interesting to hear you talk about, and obviously you've lived with you've lived with those locations in a real sense for a mm. long time in a different context. So you're not your research is, is is kind of different i guess when you're kind of writing the script and knowing knowing where you want it. you sort of said about geographically as well so which you know so again you're kind of making sure that everything is is where it would be or where it is in the world i guess is that what you're sort of saying that so that it feels yeah I, i'm saying that and saying that even with the depth using the depth in the in the in the frame there's a lot of depth that we exploit you know yeah and that's all down to choosing the right locations that allowed us to do that. Um, and even though we were on such a tight budget, we, we, we wanted to still not sacrifice that and just put everything shallow focus, which is often the case when you're so tight, you know, you make these kind mm -hmm. of sacrifices, but we didn't want to do that. So even that choice of the PRU, when he gets out at the end of the car and then you can focal point the the road and everything that he was on, even the houses, which are so much more wealthy in the background than his life. All of that is the de deliberate choices, you know, and taking extensive photos of those and kind of looking at the messaging of, of those locations, you know, and trying to get them in. You don't want to overstate this stuff. I don't think yeah. you just want it to feel like it's dripping with all of it. Yeah. Absolutely, I think that definitely that definitely works, and I think that there's a yeah there's a subtlety to it which is yeah really profound, I think, and I think that's also in 
in the dialogue and there's one moment where Simon Simon is revealed to be a human being in the smallest way um, mm -hmm. which is when he says when you know towards the end of the film when he sort of, he meets the mother in the road and he just says how is he and it feels so genuine it feels and it, it really throws it really throws you off kilter and it really makes you realize that this is not a this is not a, a, a kind of the, the cliche crime film with this guy you know like it hints at a kind of ocean of sort of darkness and kind of almost inevitability in that character um that kind of is, is present throughout the film you know and I, I, it's quite specific about the line but i wondered if that was a performance thing um you know or if it's something that you wanted that character to be imbued with and you talked about the actor with no that was written but i think you must remember the only reason why i can write that is because i know real simons you know yeah. and so and i must say like whilst i don't condone or excuse what they do in any way many of them are very charismatic very very effective and very charming and you know i think it's this whole i don't think it's useful to make monsters out of people i know there are monsters within us but i think it doesn't do us any favors because at certainly from a writing perspective, if you do that, then say you're viewing a human being through that lens and then you just go into kind of terrible cliched stuff, you know, and, and I guess youth work is powerful in that respect because what you, you, you see all the different aspects of that person over time. And, you know, one boy in particular that I worked with, in 2015 was probably one of the most damaged young men I've ever worked with. And even within his own peer group, he was regarded as, you know, very, very reckless and very dangerous. But there was something about him that I kept wanting to try and contact because he, I, what I saw was a very vulnerable, neglected young soul. And it wasn't until one of the last sessions that we had after one whole year, that I had some time with him and I said, tell me what are your interests? And he said, well, I'm an avid reader and I've read all of my, um, Malcolm X. I've read all of Jung and I'm really interested in Freud. And what I would like to do is become a therapist because I wish I'd had the same help. Yeah. And if you had seen him, trust me on the street, you would have gone, that boy needs to be put in prison. And I was like, that is so incredible. You know, this guy on his own accord had gone out and seeked these incredible, this incredible prose. And unfortunately now he is in a wheelchair and he has brain damage because of his criminal involvement. And what a lost opportunity there, you know? Yeah. And I think that's where how how is he comes from. Mm. It's like, whether we like it or not, and whether what your prejudice is, you know, Simon is a person, you know? Yeah, it's really, yeah, beautifully put. Um, you sort of mentioned before about not wanting to make a social realism film, but do you feel like it, 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 it kind of, it sits in that tradition to some extent, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, look, you can't fuck about and say, <laughs> oh, it's, uh, you know, a sci-fi. Of course, yes, you know, it's looking at a tough contemporary issue. It's... Um, 
it doesn't pull its punches, mm. you know, and the characters and the tone of the characters are, are, are very sort of unfussily naturalistic. Mm. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to negate that and, and fight against it. And I think people are saying it in a complimentary way, Yeah, you know, um, and they're meaning it in with the best possible intention. So, yeah, I think, and it, what, the reason I sort of I sort of ask it, I think, because it, it's it's one of a series of films that certainly the BFI have have, have supported. You know, you look at yeah. uh, Bait, Mogul Mowgli, Lynn and Lucy, all films which I think are stylistically really interesting, but also engage with that with that important work or that important aspect of cinema work, which is you know the political with a small p in the everyday and and the lives of of communities um, around the country. I just wondered what. You know, when did the BFI get involved, and what does it mean, you know, for a film to have that have that kind of support? Well, they came in uh, at the other end of the process because you know the making of the film was very tough, and there was no major institutional support in the development, production, or post. Um, and it wasn't until the film premiered at LFF last year that uh, Stuart Brown and Julie Pierce at the BFI, who head up the distribution team. They saw the film and they nabbed it. Um, so they've come in, bizarrely, most of the time they're in development and production, aren't they? But yeah. it's worked It's worked out the other way. Um, for me, personally, they have, I, was, I was actually in a school delivering a workshop at the time when Victoria texted me and said, the BFI want to take the film. And I was, I was, I texted her, I was just like, because the kids were like doing something and I was like, look, no, I shouldn't be on my phone when I'm there, but I don't tell anyone that. And um, and I was like, oh, go away. They're, you're just winding me up. I, th- I just thought it was such a joke because by that point we'd had so many no's that I was just, you know, immune. And then um, we were on break and we were on lunch and I got a text message and they said they've taken it and then my phone went dead. And then I had to stand in the school doing a workshop with 30 kids around me and my mind was just like... <laughs> And it was like a great example of those two worlds just yeah. merging. But the BFI revolutionised the film. Mm. You know, the, the, what can I say? I mean, the, the passion that they have for it. And that is so important when you go with a distributor. distributor. You know, that they, it's not just, they don't just see numbers, but they also see the work. Yeah. And they're in it for the right reasons. You know, and and you rattled off that that list of films just now. I think you look at all those films and you go, they were made for the right reasons and they were made with the right reasons and they've been distributed with the right reasons, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It it gives uh, hope. It gives hope, you know, that that, that, that those films can can find an audience and uh, can become part of a a kind of national conversation, Um, which leads me to the sort of the last point and question, which is about hope and I think one of the most powerful things about the film is that there is there is a huge amount of hope within it, given the context of of those lives. But in the reality, the hope is just a reset. You know that the character at the end of the film goes back almost to the, the where they were, but but changed by the experience. And I thought that was really powerful. That you know that, that what you're sort of saying is that we kind of have the we almost have the means to help, you know, we have the infrastructure to help. It's how we 
it's how we approach it and how we see it and how we treat these young people and how we kind of fund it, you know. But 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 really, it's not revolutionising, you know, it's not revolutionising how we think. It's basically, you know, really kind of creating empathy and in the funding and the support for what we do. And that, that was a really powerful thing to see at the end, that, that you know, that it's about people giving the time and the space, both the parents and the, 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 the school and the, the, the PRU workers, to to spend time and work with people and help them, you know. Um, I wondered if that, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say, isn't it? Because, you know, you don't want to sort of give away too much, but like the work, struggle to say it now, you know, was it hard to stay true to, to that kind of delicate balance between not wanting it to be, you know, um, too overwhelmingly bleak, but also not wanting it to feel like it was a kind of fairy tale and that, you know, it, it's easy if we just kind of do this, if that makes any sense. I've kind of garbled that, I think. But No, I think, I think your analysis of it is brilliant and I think it's spot on. You know, I think that's absolutely um, the intentions. You know, you've hit the nail on the head. Um, in terms of the difficulty of striking that balance, I think... Uh, I was lucky in that Paco Sweetman, my editor, has a brilliant natural sense of rhythm. And we were on a knife edge the whole time in the edit discussing this, exactly what you've just said. And he, he, he analysed the film in this very particular way, like you just said as well. So I think you're already one step ahead of the game when you've got an editor who can articulate your film probably better than you can, just like you have. Um, <laughs> so um, I was I was very fortunate in that respect because his natural sense of when things maybe are leaning too far to the right, leaning too far to the left, and it could be a couple of degrees, mm. is so sharp. You know, you must remember there are scenes in that film that haven't been touched from the very first assembly. That's how on point he was, you yeah. know? Wow. Um, and I think it was, for me, the hardest thing about the whole thing was trying to fly as close to the sun because I've been so close to that sun, but also retain the sense of authorship and sort of cinematic um, delivery. So, yeah, I, I guess every day was like, reminding myself that this isn't youth work that i'm telling i'm structuring something here and i think wasn't it kubrick who said you kind of film scenes you put them all together and then there is a part of you that kind of just hopes for the best that the collection of those moments and scenes creates what you've been what you've been in uh, what the intention is mm. and i think there were, there was a bit of that with this where it was like i've got to trust my instinct that i can that when i put all of this together that exactly your will come through and but that's where editors and heads of department are so key isn't it mm. i mean that's where you as a filmmaker you know i'm not the type of filmmaker that knows everything i'm i'm like I need you to sort that out and I want you to sort that out. But remember, this is the philosophy of the film. Mm. Does that make sense? It does, absolutely. So it is, yeah. you are allowing chance to come into that. 
I don't want to make it seem like I didn't know what I was doing, but I also feel that a director also has to know when actually to yield and trust the process, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a film which... I think it's a film which which does that really beautifully in terms of the collaborators, like you say, the editing, the cinematography, the performances. You know, that there's clearly a trust in the in the the collaborative nature of the process, which is really rewarding when you're watching it. You know, and it, and it's it's one of those things where, for the type of film that it is, you want you want that because you don't want it to feel you want it to feel lived in, and you want it to feel like that there's people responding to the material in their in their in all of their own departments as rather than just you saying no it has to be you have to do it like this because this is the real from my experience you know and you've obviously relinquished a lot of that um which is a bold move but i think it pays off because everyone else comes towards the film you know which is really nice yeah and i think i think that's such a great point because i think there's this myth about directors out there that it's like you can't say, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Like if someone asks you a question, it's like, it's okay to say, I don't know, give me a couple of minutes on that and I'll come back to you. But I think a lot of directors are afraid to say that. And the thing about youth work is like, you can plan a session, right? You can plan, you can have all these plans. And the moment you walk into that room, that plan is gone because there's a chair going past your head. Someone's brought out a knife and you're like, fuck's sake, like this is just crazy. So that world has taught me to be very flexible and mercurial almost and to also have a lot of trust because you have to trust in youth work. You can't, you can't micromanage because if you do that with young people, they kick, they kick yeah. back, you know? And I think with the heads of department, one thing that I'm so proud of is that they've all said to me when they watch the film, they can see their work plastered all over it, you know? And that, that's where I want my filmmakers. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's where, that's where you want your filmmakers. Cause at the end of the day, I don't know as much as sphere. I don't know. I haven't cut as much as Puck. I've not cut anything. So you, you need these guys to express themselves mm. guys and girls. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, I think your film is a wonderful example of that. Um, and yeah, I appreciate the chance to, to talk to you about it. Well, thanks Neil. Some really great questions, bro. I really liked it. Pleasure. Um, hope our paths cross again soon. Uh, hopefully, man. Hopefully. Thank you. Thanks so much to Henry for his time. Uh, really enjoyed that conversation. And yeah, definitely recommend checking out County Lines. Dario, what did you make of that? Yeah, I, I watched it last night and it's really hard hitting, I found. Um, but it's it's really interesting aesthetically, and you know we can come on to the sort of social realist elements of it. And I think actually that's that that was the key question for me, and you you sort of touched on it there. That idea of of social realism being unstylized or unobtrusive or unmediated in a way that so again, I'm sorry to sort of harp on it that that there isn't a manipulative or a, or an intervention in the middle of this reality versus rep or reality representation bridge and that I, I don't think that is the case here so it's interesting to hear it's always interesting to hear directors who have made films that on the on the outside you know you could place within a taxonomy of being British social realist and whether they adopt that or accept that and it's funny how you know we'll come on to the the, the other interview later on but but that sense of accepting that this is 
the context in which it has been made, whether and how intentional that is or not, is open to question. And maybe maybe it's just a sense of no, I'm not. I haven't gone back to Ken Loach and watched all these movies before I've I've made this film. But there's a sense I know what I'm trying to the aesthetic I'm trying to get here. But yeah, a really really fascinating use of space and light and the way that the kind of different elements of of the film are shot in terms of close-up and then not in close-up going sort of backward and forward with that I think is is really interesting because you, you know sometimes I, I I always think that that it's one of the things that I see critics say about filmmakers oh they're they're tricksy with their you know with their framings and stuff I kind of fi- I find that really irritating in a, in a way so, so everything has to look completely square on and like tv it's like no here's a filmmaker who is telling a, a visual story which is interesting but then how does that fit to the to a social realist um un- well you know an understanding of what we what we actually mean by that yeah yeah it's interesting isn't it because you know the question of can british social realism be stylized it's it's like maybe not but maybe we just have to stop seeing it as british social realism mm. You know, and kind of be wider in, you know, not 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 us, but I think in terms of how how we engage with these films in the first place. You know, and I think a lot of that is to do with that idea of what how you tell certain stories. You know, and I think you know to go back to the Mike Lee thing. You know, in terms of like Life is Sweet, when you go back, you realise that actually it's not. That's a really stylized film, mostly in performance, but you know, at the time, it kind of feels like telling the truth of the, of the people's lives which I, I think it is as well so do we discount a film immediately if it's got a style you know and I think that even something like Lynn and Lucy which is ostensibly you know square four by three I think it has a style um to it and it's making very very definite decisions about composition and framing and and, and pace and all that kind of stuff it just it feels closer to the other end of the spectrum that we like you say that kind of the idea of a loach film that we carry in our head when we go and watch a film about you know poor people or the working mm. class or yeah, yeah, you know yeah. people of different ethnicities um you know and what's really interesting about county lines is that it really struck me early on like i'm watching something where there's a real style to it but it's not in a it's not in a way that i've i've kind of seen this story told and i didn't know how i feel, felt about that yeah you know like that was something that i had to negotiate which made the film more more powerful and more interesting because it was it was both kind of creating attention in me in terms of the types of story but also kind of what the reality of that character's life is outside the context of the film and how you know any kind of cinematic styling is kind of is kind of eschewing certain elements of truth um and kind of telling certain types of stories almost as a kind of critique of mm. of how how a kind of unobtrusive you know purportedly realist film is is, yeah. is is kind of is no is no different to mm-hmm. something which is very designed um and, and I, think I think it does it, it correlates more to to kind of like the genre crossover movies in of the late 70s early 80s that you were talking about because it does have that gangster element to it but it's not you know gangster <laughs> i mean yeah, it yeah. isn't guy Ritchie. and guy and yeah. um guy lodge's review in in variety is very good i think on this it sort of talks about it being brute social realism with a with a thriller's ticking clock so and and he he mentions the the flourishes in terms of you know the the the, the form of the film and the, the the cinematography and the framing but then the, there's this sort of dim 
shallow palette and some great uses of light. I mean, the, the, the moment at the very end where he gets out of the car, this is not a spoiler, he gets out of a car and the, the light is shone on the mother's face. And it's really obvious that that's been extra lit, you know what I mean? And it's mm. it, 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 it works really well. But I, mm. I don't think you ever lose that sense of place and society. But one of the things I was thinking about when I was watching this and all of the recent films that we've that we've been watching is how th the protagonists i think more in today's today's social realism if that's what we're calling them st stand for themselves much more than they stand for a social class which i think is the big difference for me mm. you know and and don't get me wrong i think that th this is a i mean it's clear that this is a story that comes from the the experience of the the director and his role that he has in working with these kids who have you know suffering this this trauma have been you know groomed essentially to 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 be these drug traffickers and that's very similar i think to or it has a, a, an echo in the way that that um sarah gavron worked with her actors but i think that rather than rather than Im, Im, importing a sense of the, here is a person who represents a class position it is i think representative of a kind of a sort of sense in, in which we're all we're all subject to kind of like our individual our individual positions in in this whole oppressive hierarchical system I, I, you know i'm saying us i'm not you know I, I, i'm not in that position obviously i'm in a very privileged position but you know yeah. what i mean it's kind of like we're, we're all we're all individually subject to so many different forces that are you know, we're either in the ascendancy or we're not in the ascendancy in that in that sense. Because it's like, the, I mean, you touched on it, the character of Simon is both in power and in many ways probably a victim at the same time. And that's that's a difficult one, isn't it? You can't sort of say here are the, he's not a kind of uh, a factory boss in the old school Marxist sense of, of exploitation, is he? He's part of a system that is oppressing him, but also he's a tool of that oppression at the same time, which is really kind of interesting, I think. Yeah, and I think that is something that is is strong in a lot of these films, is, is, is are those moments, those kind of complicated moments where, you know, there might be kind of genre trappings in various ways um, used to different effects, but ultimately, yeah, that there's these, these very intricately messy lives at the centre of them, particularly with, 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 I think you're right, kind of younger younger protagonists you know i'm thinking even something like bait and you think about the central kind of romantic relationship in bait you know which is mm. cross-class but not never really it's never commented on within that context no. by those people you know that the the the, the 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 kind of the social contract is understood externally um for the most part you know uh, particularly by the kind of the brother and then the, you know the the, the 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 two families above that so i think yeah that there's there definitely feels like an interesting kind of set of 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 stories around you know the 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 generation that is the latest victim of an ever increasing mess of a of a kind of system um mm. and the mess of the system is at play in all of these films all around and it's they they it's interesting in in them how they how they end up part of it how they're already part of it how they how they ultimately don't become part of it in you know a variety of kind of tragic or thankfully not so tragic ways you know i think it's they all feel quite truthful in terms of the fact that it's there's not a 
it's not simple as like this happens and then this happens and then you end up here you know which what I, one of the things i like about county lines is that as i sort of said to the to henry there like the hope at the end of the film is a reset it's not a <laughs> it doesn't go off and become a you know it's like he just gets to go back to school um yeah you know yeah. uh which and are, there's no sense of political change no. afoot at all, you know? No, in, in any of them, you know? No. Um, no. Which I think, you know, kind of goes back to what we were sort of saying about Lynn and Lucy, which is like, you know, that the, it's hard to watch these films, you know, in a time where, you know, they feel very, very truthful in terms of the reality of those yeah, characters' yeah, yeah. lives. And when you look outside the screen, life as lived for most people on in the country, you know, they feel very much documents of their time which yep. is why I think it's a really interesting time because it's been a while since we've had a slew of films which are very, very different, telling different kind of stories in different communities in the country, but that all feel plugged into a feeling that of, of, of where we are right now, you know. Um, yep. And I think that's exciting, that, that that's yep. become a factor of cinema, our British cinema again. Yeah, and it, it, and it's so fascinating to me how, you know, one of the most popular genres with young people i mean it's everywhere is that is the dystopian the futuristic dystopian you know whether it's a sci-fi or or you know a world view, a world that is set up to show how terrible things are going to be and it's almost to me it's almost as if those are they give relief for for what is here the here and now but actually coming back to the here and now it's it's worse and it's now you know yeah. what I mean? and that's that's why these films are so powerful at least there's a sort of sense in the in the kind of theatrical romantic realism sense, those dystopias always have a they always give you the out of a protagonist who's fighting against the system. Nobody's fighting against the system in terms of they're going to triumph over it. Yeah, they're fighting against it, the system in terms of survival. Yeah, at the very, you know, at its very en- elemental level. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, food and shelter. Yeah, you know, like that's yeah. it. That's you know, they just want you know, and the chance to just go to school or the chance to just play with their mates. You know, like it's a really. And I think, but that's interesting about the dystopian thing because, yeah, kind of, I work with a lot of screenwriters at the university who kind of write a lot of that stuff and you do see it as a kind of projection of hope, you know, like that if I write something about the future and I can make it work or we could see something where the planet dies but we still carry on, there's hope that that what that what we know is happening now or what we feel is happening now but we can't necessarily articulate can be resolved, can be, you know, it really feels like a kind of existential projection of and I think that's why, and it's it does tie in something that I know we were going to talk about, which is you know this idea of who this the audience is, is for these films, you know, um, because I don't think it's ever been a mainstream, you know. Um, and I think your your introduction of the film Monty is really interesting because I think that's a film that does a lot of that work under the guise of being a kind of you know laddie musical, um, you know. And but 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 for the most part, these films are going to be seen by people like us. <laughs> You know, who understand it and have yeah. come from a place adjacent to it, but have a very privileged life through the fact that the factors that led in our lives have led us to this point, which I think is is interesting. So then it's like, well, why make them? You know, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just it's it, it's fascinating to me. I mean, we'll move on to the next in- interview in a second, but it, just on that, it's fascinating to me that Ken Loach is the place he's revered the most is Cannes. Mm. you know rather than the the uk and he's seen as a sort of pariah you know commie over in mainstream society here but let's move to the to our second interview now so this is with the the director sarah gavron who's talking about her 
recent film which is available on Netflix, Rocks. Yo, I'm gonna be the new Picasso. These are your clients. Yes, you yeah, I'm gonna be a millionaire. How's your mum doing? Yeah, she's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Right now, so if you'd like to leave a message, you did the right thing by calling us. Yeah, that's you. Come on, man, let's go. I think you should tell someone about your mom. It's just you and Emmanuel. You wouldn't understand. What's the problem? Talk to me. I, I don't, don't need get you it. to worry for me. You're nothing such a beautiful world. You have to leave now. Get out. Get out. There's nothing can be loved into something. There's got to be a way to do all this. You just can't keep going on by yourself. I've got five fun. I have 20. Yeah, I see the queen. The queen's shining. Hi. <laughs> Rocks, man. What do I work to hide? <laughs> Welcome to the future. Oi, where's your tickets? <laughs> Close your eyes. Think of everything that is happy. And stop thinking about all your worries. We're coming with you. So I'm delighted to be joined on The Cinematologists by film director Sarah Gavron. Sarah, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I always kind of start these interviews these days with saying, you know, how are you doing at the moment? Um, you know what I mean? It's, it's such a it's such a crazy time. And I don't know, you know, everybody's in their specific circumstances. But I think, you know, talking to sort of artists and filmmakers, people in film, you, you get a range of responses to that question. So how are you doing right now? Well, it's been a bizarre time because obviously it's horrible in lots of ways for so many people and in terms and for the film industry, devastating and for cinemas. But we released Rocks, you know, just in September and luckily got into a you know, little window of time yeah. where could go to the cinema and we were really delighted that people got the opportunity to see it on the big screen even if in limited ways um, and now it's on Netflix so the story of rocks has been kind of one that we've been grateful for but in other ways of course it's challenging I'm spending a lot of time developing new ideas and working with people over zoom um, you know everybody's home so that's one benefit you can get yeah. through but obviously it's a struggle yeah. And have you kind of have you kind of reevaluated perhaps your relationship to the film industry as an as an artist? I mean, obviously, we'll talk a little bit about the things that drive you in a minute. But just just me as an academic, it's it's really sort of forced me to look at that role and what it is that I'm teaching and what it is that I'm doing. I just wondered, have you had the same reaction? Definitely. I mean, I think, you know, every film project I embark on, you kind of endlessly question, what's it about? What's it for? Why are we making it? And now more than ever, because it feels like, for me, it feels like a time to make work that has important, sort of somehow reflects the time we're in or speaks to it or says something. Yeah. I mean, it was encouraging to see people's reactions to rocks in that it was a story of a, you know, a young black girl growing up in, in a city London and, and people seemed to sort of connect with it at this moment because she was finding joy in everyday life and perhaps that's much needed joy even though she was going through quite difficult situations. So yeah, now in terms of um, 
future projects I'm thinking what will connect what's what's got value what's got meaning for the times we're in now yeah it's a really really important question and and rocks definitely sort of uh, ties into that for sure in the ways that you describe and we'll Obviously, we'll, we'll come to speaking about that directly, but maybe we could go back a little bit and, and you know, were you always a, a film person as a, as a kid, you know, or were you sort of, sort of more generally arty? How did you get into this interest in, in filmmaking originally? I really wasn't a film person as a kid. Um, I was really, really interested in drama and I had a, um, a sister and two brothers and I used to play sort of role play games endlessly with my sister where I was done. <laughs> hours on end you know around the house so I realized that I was kind of practicing my directing skills from the age of about four on right. <laughs> but um I was very interested in drama very interested in art um you know watched telly but didn't have much access to the cinema or theater for that matter just didn't go um so wasn't kind of aware of what was out there and then mm. in my teens when we started sort of going to the local Odeon I was seeing American sort of Hollywood stuff like Top Gun and you know and <laughs> Dirty Dance. Sounds very familiar. <laughs> I know, I just wasn't seeing art house films. So it was a kind of revelation for me, like an almost an epiphany when I started, you know, discovering um, more eclectic cinema and world cinema and films made by women. And that was in my kind of late teens, early 20s. You know, saw work by Jane Campion and Mira Nair and, you know, Terence Davies, Stephen Frears, Mike Lee, Ken Loach. And it was like, oh, God, there's a vision here. This is a mm. world I recognize. I can see there's a filmmaker behind this and I then started just having ideas for short films and stories told in the medium of film uh, and then sort of co quite coincidentally I went after after I did an English degree I did a year of film MA at Edinburgh College of Art uh, partly because I went there because I was sort of chasing a boyfriend who was there. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, <laughs> at least and, it worked out maybe. <laughs> but it was a great thing for me because all yeah. these students, all the undergraduates knew Tarkovsky and knew Bergman, so I right. sort of had an introduction. Then yeah. later, of course, to the National Film Television School and got much sure. more in-depth training. Was the MA practice and theory or was it just kind of film studies? No, it was actually practice. It was all about okay. making stuff, which was right. what kind of needed at that moment. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, and, and I've sort of caught up on theory. I, I sort of always, always wish I'd done a degree in either drama or film theory or something. Uh, but, you know, you, I've, I've been doing it through my life now. Yeah, yeah it, it's interesting how many filmmakers you, you sort of come across who do it that, that way round and that they come to the kind of these sort of theoretical interpretations of the, in terms of coming through the practice side of it so it's always fascinating that how was how was nfts then i'm assuming it was a you know a pretty formative experience yeah it really was i mean i i went after the first year i did in edinburgh i spent four years making documentaries or working as a researcher first and then working my way up the um into documentaries and that was a kind of useful um way of understanding how to work with people and all sorts sure. of stories are out there but when I went to the NFTS it was really really a wonderful opportunity for me because it was just three years intensively of working with peers of having amazing mentors and, and staff and equipment to make short films I mean it was a three-year course now it's a two-year course at that point um, you didn't have to pay for it because we were in the wonderful world of grants and everything um, it was a different kind of world but you know, it's still there and all those courses are still, I think, wonderful opportunities. They're not, obviously not the only way to, to become a director, but it's just, it's, it's a structure that I found very useful at that time. 
and in total I made while I was there I made five or six short films yeah and and you you're actually taught by Stephen Frears because it's interesting I was even without like seeing that on Wikipedia you know I was like you know this has that kind of your films have that kind of flavor I think if that's an okay way to put it yeah, I was taught by him. I mean, the, the NFTS had some great teachers and he was one of them. And um, he'd sit in, he was particularly great in the edit room, actually. He'd sit oh, right. in the edit room and, and, you know, didn't mince his words. He'd say, this is rubbish, this is boring. He'd, I mean, he'd sleep if it was boring. But he'd also um, just really, really knew how to transform something in the edit and teach you in the edit in terms of what you could have got and what you're missing. And um, so I sort of always feel I've got his voice in my head when I make films in terms of, oh, am I getting this? Am I capturing the scene? Have I got the right coverage? You know? Yeah. And um, and obviously you, you were saying there you made plenty of shorts while you were there. And then you moved into BBC documentaries for a short time before sort of making Brick Lane. Was there a, you always hear about it's so difficult to get features funded and all of this kind of thing. But, you know, it's a fairly, I mean, Brick Lane, it's, in, in many ways, it is a first feature and, and you can see kind of like sort of elements of that, but it's still quite a, a you know, a big size production for a first feature. How did that kind of come together? Well, actually, it was it was the other way around. So I'd done the documentaries before I went to the NFTS. Oh, right, so right, right. My 20s. So when I came out of the NFTS, the first I did a couple more shorts, but then the first feature length thing I did was a film for television called This Little Life before Brick Lane. And in a way that was a really, really key film for me to make because it was my first professional experience of being on a, a professional set and, and understanding the parameters of that. And that was a kind of 90 minute film for television about a woman who loses a premature baby. Um, and I was working with real actors like Peter Mullen and Kate Ashfield and Linda Bassett and stuff. So that was, that was a brilliant um, opportunity for me to sort of cut my teeth on working in the, in the real world. And so when I came to Brick Lane, I had had that experience, but it was still a kind of huge endeavor, you know, mm. just filling that enormous book, working with a great writer, Abby Morgan um, and Laura Jones and, and finding the kind of essence of it. And then, you know, casting in India. And I mean, it, it was, it was a, a big, big thing for me to bite off at that stage. And I, you know, I learned a lot as you always learn on every project. Yeah, and it's it's obviously a, a story about a character who has come from Bangladesh and is dealing with her own kind of personal struggles. But then there's the sort of social elements on on the outside of that. And I think it's really amazingly held together with the central performance. And it's uh, Denise the Chatterjee is is playing this this central character as Nazneen Ahmed. One of the things I kind of really found interesting about the film was the way that it portrays her particular struggles interestingly that there isn't this kind of like overwhelming sense of here's a journey she's got to go on an obstacle she's got to get across and there are things that the character does which you know maybe perceived as being unsympathetic in in that sense and obviously you've got the the ethnic element to it so there's a lot of elements there that could be quite problematic but how did you sort of approach it in terms of those kinds of issues well, yeah, we worked very closely with the community. Obviously, we had Monica Ali's book, you know, yeah. and she was, um, you know, she understood that world so intimately um, because of her background. Um, and so that was our kind of template and then the script. But 
I'm, I always loved doing research and working with communities anyway, um, and it felt essential for this. Um, and, you know, a number of the crew came from that community and in terms of the people who were sourcing the supporting artists. And we had um, associate, a couple of associate directors who were Bangladeshi, um, one who, Sangeeta Datta, who helped us when we were shooting in West Bengal in India for Bangladesh, and another who, uh, Rahul Amin, who worked with us in the UK, who was in East London, filmmaker so they were able to fill in those details of cultural details and all the kind of texture that is so important um, and it was challenging because there was controversy a little bit of controversy around the book and controversy around us filming and there was actually mm. a protest which really kind of rooted from a small amount of um, men in the community who were upset more about what the book or the story represented in terms of a woman having extramarital affair mm. but um for a while you have to take those things seriously and we didn't want to put anyone in 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 peril so yeah. um we kind of curtailed our filming in some way we then went back and shot in this in in brick lane and you know in the end it was of course ironically very well received yeah. by the community yeah. um because okay, they saw that you know it wasn't it was kind of a full picture of a woman and also only one woman but i think that you know storytelling and who owns stories and who's got the right to tell stories is has shifted a lot since i made brick lane in, in interesting and useful ways i think mm. and now and, and I encountered this making rocks, you know, worked very collaboratively with a team and a, and a writer, one of the writers who's from that community. And we couldn't have done it without that. And I think, you know, there is a question about who should tell those kind of stories now because there are so few of them. And I'm, you know, getting to the point where I think that as a white filmmaker, it's important that I don't kind of tell stories that other people from those communities could tell because mm. we're still in a time where there are that you know you only get one story from those communities we need to expand that we need to be getting lots and lots of stories um, and then they'll anybody can make them and they yeah. should be made in all sorts of ways so it's kind of i'm constantly reflecting on that issue i have to say yeah no and no, i agree totally and because you could you could get to the point where you're going so far the other way that say it's impossible for a man to write a female character or a white person to write a black character you know you could go to the point where and if that was the case you would yeah. never get anything made that was just not completely homogenous so yeah it's a tricky it's a tricky balance to 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 find ideally, a thing any artist ought to be able to make anything and you know it's the yeah. part of the imagination isn't it and sure. um, but but yes while there's a time where not enough is being commissioned from certain areas and backgrounds and you know arenas then you need sure. to look closely yeah yeah I, th I think it's probably it, it's an it, you know a, a sort of uh, equality of opportunity question as much as representational question really Absolutely. yeah I mean, that's what it is yeah and then, and then after that, you, you, in terms of features, you go on to make Suffragette, which I just watched the other night for the first time and was just like, I don't think I registered when it first came out, the sort of scope of the, you know, the amount of stars that are in it and the, the size of that production. And, and, you know, without sort of being sort of condescending, that's, that, that's a big, I mean, that, that's a big thing to come to, is it? Were, were you sort of, did you have sort of trepidation or were you kind of like used to this idea of, of you know, working with, well-known actors, particularly people like Meryl Streep and, you know, Helena Bonham Carter. Yeah, I mean, you know, of course I was in awe of them. I mean, I'd lived with the project of Suffragette for a long time. I kind of wanted to make a film about the Suffragettes when I first came out of film school, so in 2000. And, you know, I'd, I'd, then it came out in 2015. So it, it was a long gestation and, sure. and I, I'd sort of imagined it for many, many years and and then worked with Abby Morgan and, and Faye Ward and Alison Owen, the producers, 
on it for sort of almost six years before we came to it. So by that time, I'd kind of grown into it. Um, but, you know, it's in some ways, filmmaking is the same whether you're doing a short film or you're doing a feature film with stars. You know, it's the same sort of process. It's a number of people around the camera and what you capture in the, in the lens. And mm. um, of course, there's, you know, what was great about Suffragette was working with these actors who were just so um, skilled and brought so much to the table in such interesting ways. And it was so exciting for me to have that, that quality of, yeah. of, of writing talent around. Um, who, and they were also invested in that story and, 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 you know, lovely to work with actually. And we had, a, we had lots of women heads of department and there was just a kind of atmosphere of, you know, this is a great story, let's do it and let's make it. And the sort of, you know, it was again a collaboration like, like Rocks that I really enjoyed. Mm. And one of the things I noticed, you know, when I was watching was the way that it dealt with what, you know, I might pretentiously call the aesthetics of period or historical filmmaking. And I think one of the things about your films is the sort of changing colour palettes from space to space and the sense of mood and experience being different. And I think what the film really does well was avoiding kind of like either nostalgia or kind of Disneyfication of the past, if I can put it that way. I mean, how did you come into that, the, the film in terms of, right, this is what I kind of, how, how I want the past to look, in a sense? We were really aware of, of how, you know, up to that point, there had been so few renditions, so few accounts of that period of time through the eyes of women and the, the prism of the movement, of the suffragette movement. So it was a case of, you know, there was, there was Mary Poppins, which mm. was um, version of it which is what most people think of as a suffragette woman yeah. and so we then wanted to kind of counter all that and say actually you know this this was a political movement they were activists they were out in the streets they were ordinary women we, we looked at the working class women who were involved in the movement who had often been kind of overlooked and we wanted to sort of feel like you were walking down those streets with them and feel the kind of grime and sweat of London then and the, the busyness of London so it was all that was our kind of cue for it so you know we did use a lot of handheld camera we stayed mm. close to our characters um, that was the kind of notion of it to break not to look at them through a proscenium arch and feel very distanced from them which sometimes you can do and I you know you can admire the kind of artistry of it but we wanted to feel up close to them yeah and and you you can't just sort of sit back and admire the that sense of the of the aesthetic of the past particularly when you come to the sort of two key scenes the sort of really painful scenes in the middle where the sun gets taken away and then the torture sequence because it's you know it, it, there, there's always a temptation I suppose with a film that is supposed to be aimed at a broad audience that those need to be softened up a little bit, but but especially, I mean, the torture scene is you know visceral in in that physical sense. But the the young boy acting, I, but he was incredible in that scene. I mean, how, how do you approach something like that? That's all about well, in terms of the young boy, it's all about casting. I think yeah, you know, we yeah. worked with the director Fiona Weir, who found that boy, and you know, and then I worked with him in a sort of audition space, and you could just see that he was a, a boy who was really sensitive, who really understood. Um, what was going on and what it, what was required and was you know a little emotional soul who could mm. capture that and some children just have that ability and um, so that was kind of you know he was there and his mother was around and we were trying to sort of support him you've got to be ethical yeah. about these things you know and do the right thing um, yeah in terms of the torture scene it was something that was you know we were going back Abby was going back to all the accounts and women wrote amazing diaries handwritten diaries about those experiences of being force fed 
and you just felt, you know, it was resonating with world events and accounts of the way people were being treated, not just women, you know, people were being treated around the world in contemporary 21st um, world. So we felt like we really, really needed to connect with the, the sort of awfulness of that and not shy away from it and yeah. show what really went on because it was quite astounding. Obviously in the, those first two films and on Rocks as well, you sort of talked about the the collaborative work with screenwriters and female screenwriters particularly and and obviously on your productions many of the roles are taken taken by women and it's you know it's clear that that's a that's a definitive decision that you're you're taking as a, a director in in that that sense i mean it, for obvious reasons you know in terms of in terms of that equality of of opportunity but in terms of representation and, and voice and the sort of politics of that it's it's always an interesting question. Do you think that that there is a sort you can see on the screen the fact that this is a female led project? Do you think there is a sort of real correlation between having women working on screen and then the kind of aesthetic you get in the finished article? I think that's a really interesting question. And, and for me, it's kind of all intuitive and it's hard to kind of dissect and analyze in that way. Because I we, we talk now about the female gaze and yes. I think that kind of interesting and you know for years there's been you know analysis of, of analyses of films um, that have depicted particularly female sexuality mm. through a male gaze and and I'm sure you know there's a lot of value in that that, that women have been sort of seen through the eyes of men mm. in film particularly and there's something about not seeing them in that way I'm sure men can do it too and they have done it um, over and over told female stories that don't feel like they're sort of voyeuristic and feel like they're from the inside and you know film is such a collaboration there are so many elements to what makes a scene and the director is one of them and holding the vision but on the other hand you know it's who's behind the camera what's the actor doing or the actress doing um, that feeds into the way that a scene plays out so I think it's sometimes quite difficult to dissect, but there's definitely um, truth in the fact that films made by women tend to have more female heads of department and tend to focus more on women um, in front of the camera. So or put women at the center of their stories. So, you know, inevitably they then become more sort of true to the female experience just yeah. by the fact centering them. Yeah, I think there is a lot of writing around at the moment in terms of um, female directors being considered as auteurs in that uh, old-fashioned, you might say, sense. So, you know, Sophia Coppola or Lynn Ramsey or these kind of people are sort of seen as these female auteurs. And it's interesting that you talk a lot and, and just here now you've been talking about working with the screenwriter. I mean, I don't know, how do you see that yourself as the director? Do, do you have that sense of this is my film and my personal vision or is it more a, a case of actually there's a you know the, there's always these partnerships going on so that that sense of the one person you know the, the math master author of the text is is me and I'm driving that I mean again it's a tough one because you're the person I'm asking but but you know definitely on rocks um we challenged that idea and um, it certainly wasn't an auteur project and it was kind of co-authored by a number of different women and um, mm. you know it was a really interesting thing and we built it into the whole way we promoted it because it was so true to the way it was made that on that particular project you know from the ground up right from the opening um, day of it we were, were I was working with the casting director the writers were around we were workshopping with uh, um, the young people not even knowing who was going to be in our cast or what the story was going to be so we built it deliberately with a whole team um, and it was a true true sort of multi-voiced project 
um, you know, and Teresa Rococo, who came up with the narrative, obviously led that. Um, the notion of the story and with Claire Wilson, but in terms of the detail and the texture, so many people were pouring into that all through the crew. I think it totally depends on the project. And I think we've got a sort of slightly rigid idea of what the director does. And I think that it varies film to film. You know, mm. you'll get an author who, um, and certainly there are many of them who write and direct and sometimes even pick up the camera and sometimes edit. And then their authorship is kind of more imprinted on the screen. Um, mm. Obviously they're being fed into by their designers and their performers and all sorts of other elements too. But um, there's more a sense of, of, of single ownership um, but, you know, often, and I think it's overlooked, um, films are not made by that, that the director alone. I mean, you know, the, obviously they're not made by the director alone, but they're not just voiced by the director or authored by the director. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's often unacknowledged. And I feel it's really, really important to acknowledge in my films where I do feel I'm hugely reliant on the vision of the other people around me that I acknowledge those, those people. In terms of the, the the move from suffragette to rocks, was that a kind of conscious thing? Because, you know, it would be very, I'm assuming, it would be very easy to sort of say, okay, I've made suffragettes now, what's the big next big massive thing I can do? And it is a smaller film in, in that sense. Did, were, you, were you very, you know, did, were you mindful that that's what you wanted to do next? Yeah, I mean, I know, I can see it's quite perplexing and in a way <laughs> it's very, very particular to my personal circumstances. So right. yes, you know, it, it would have been a kind of obvious thing to go on to do um, a more sort of, you know, as you say, sort of star-led uh, project. But wh where I was at in life, and it's almost like a kind of first film rocks in that way, but where I was at in life was that I got a, um, a teenage daughter who was just entering those years and I was totally fascinated oh, by um, what it is to be a girl growing up now. I come out of Suffragette thinking about women a hundred years ago and I was really really interested in women now. I wanted to do something local and in my world um, partly because of personal circumstances and wanting to stay near home but also because I'm always fascinated by that and so there's a lot that determines that. Um, and also, you know, I enjoy that kind of community spirit and working in collaboration and, and a sort of hybrid of documentary and drama. So it brought together all those things. So rather than thinking of it as a kind of career move, it was more about where was my interest and where was my focus and where was my passion at that moment. And that's what I followed rather than anything else. It's interesting there because it's it's obviously um, a key element of, of rocks, this, this hybrid aesthetic let's say but it's not just that it's the, the the performances as well in terms of a sort of crossover between drama and documentary and and I suppose that would have to come through the process that you've talked about I mean you know you were saying there you worked in workshops and you know in a range of schools trying to sort of work through these and, and was that sort of even before the script was written because a lot of the film does seem quite improvised and was it a case of just letting these kids do, you know, have their conversations and then saying, okay, we'll go in this direction? How did that sort of how did that sort of work in, in developing the story? It was a combination of all those things in lots of ways. And we were kind of evolving the process as we went as a team. So initially we thought rather than write a script, which we would normally do, and then go out, find your casting director, do auditions and cast, you know, that particular kind of girl who's sort of that height and that description and that kind of personality type. Let's let's do it in reverse. Let's find, let's go into schools, research, 
pick up the sort of atmosphere of schools and what stories these young people want to tell and what's preoccupying them and what their worlds are about in a kind of documentary research style way. Then we called a number of young people into workshops. So Lucy Pardy um, was leading on casting and she's worked in that way a lot anyway. And in these girls came into workshops and Teresa Rococo and Claire Wilson, the writers and a number of the other creative team were in those workshops. We were doing drama exercises. We were getting to know one another. We were doing conversations about what are preoccupations of their life and friendship emerged very early as one of the key, key things that goes on for teenage girls around 13, 14, 15. Yeah. Um, how their friendship group become their kind of new family. Um, we, we zoned in on that quite quickly that we wanted to focus on that. We didn't want it to hinge around boys as, as you know, I've loved lots of films that hinge around boys, but this was, we wanted to really make this about female friendship. Um, so we started to kind of narrow our focus in that way. And then we were lacking um, a kind of narrative thread to link together all these wonderful scene ideas the writers had. And, that was when Teresa Rococo came into the room about six months into that workshop process and said, I've been working on this storyline idea that, um, that I feel would fit. We could, we could fill in a lot of the kind of moments of it with scenes we'd already come up with, like the Afrobeat scene and the, all sure. sorts of school moments and character moments. And she then, her and Claire then sort of fed in a lot of the workshop material into that. We carried on working with the potential cast, building that up. Then we went into the shoot and on the shoot, um, you know, the writers were around a lot and the creative team were around a lot and the girls themselves by then knew how to improvise within scenes. They knew how to, they were very unselfconscious about us being around and filming them because we'd done a lot of that in the workshops. We had by then a, a sort of, a very young, um, very female crew who were from a range of backgrounds, so they felt very familiar to the girls. Mm. And we shot in a way that took away all the kind of constraints of normal filmmaking. So we didn't say action. We did very, very long takes. We did two cameras. We rolled off them before they even got on the set. We shot all the rehearsals. Um, so it was all about kind of giving them freedom in terms of where they moved and the lighting was 360 so they could move anywhere. And um, yeah. so in that sense, it, it did have a sort of documentary approach um, in some ways that gave them a lot of freedom. Yeah, it's interesting how I think in, in films that are about social life in the broadest sense and, and placing the characters within that, it's how do you get that across without being kind of didactic? Because I think, you know, God love him, I love Ken Loach to death, but maybe you could argue that, that his, you know, more recent films do, do have a sort of clunky sense of didacticism in, in, in them. You know, to, some, some of the stuff is really interesting to me, like, say, for example, that the teaching as surveillance and crowd control rather than, rather than actual teaching and, and, you know, this sense of the entrepreneurialism of, of Shola as a makeup artist, and that kind of feeds into the you know, the, the, these formulate patterns that we have in school, you know, where they're all filling out, for example, what career do you want? And the teacher says, well, you know, you're going to need better grades to be a lawyer. And those kinds of things are really sort of subtly underneath, I think, the storytelling. Was that sort of a sense that, I mean, how do you approach that that idea of, yeah, I want to get the, the social world right and actually make some some political points maybe here, but not do this point your finger at the audience kind of thing? Yeah, so that in a way came out of one, you know, doing the research process and then discussing in the workshops um, 
and, and sort of feeding those moments in. I mean, a little bit of trial and error. So, you know, you sometimes feel in the edit, oh, you know, we're making that point too strongly, let's pull back. Um, you know, the, the narrative that Theresa had written had at its core a kind of political element because it was dealing with the idea of um, kids who were, you know, being fostered and what social services represented to the people from those communities and, you know, those who fall um, through the cracks and, and, and young people and how vulnerable they are and all those sort of ideas were there in the narrative sort of built into it. But in terms of this sort of little political moments, we were constantly um, on set and the writers were there trying out seeding in moments, you know, and the girls were keen to put the, some discussions in about things and they do have political discussions and yeah. they do bring up like their grandfather in Auschwitz or they bring up, you know, ideas that or they, you know, they encounter casual racism like the man in the B&B or, you know, they, they encounter those things. So we were sort of seeding them in and then working out in the edit where they felt like they tipped into sort of the filmmakers telling you something or they felt organic to the scene. Yeah. And the, and the Picasso scene is very key to that, you know, in terms of sort of doing the cutting up exercise and it allows, you know, it's, it, it, as a device, it allows them to get into that discussion. And I wondered, because they are talking about cultural identity and, and this kind of thing. And that seemed very sort of, as if they just were, were sat down and having a discussion. Is that something that just sort of came about organically? Well, I mean, we'd sat in a lot of, I'd sat in a lot of art classes and seen exactly that um, right. play out in terms of cutting up. And the kids had done that kind of exercise in their art classes at school. So they, were, they felt very sort of normal about that. And actually I was really struck by how much in school there is quite sort of focused discussion about, you know, whether it's in PSHE or whether it's in geography or history or whatever it is, um, their cultural identities come up a lot. and. Mm even in their banter, it comes up a lot because, you know, with those kind of friendship groups where they're all from different backgrounds, but they're finding kind of common, um, they're finding common ideas amongst them, but they're also enjoying the exchange and the banter around the different foods they eat, the different religions they practice, the different festivals they celebrate, the yeah. different languages they speak at home. So there's a lot that just comes up naturally, actually. But in that class, um, we we prompted that discussion through the teacher sort of saying you know sit down and talk about what makes you who you are and then they just sort of ran with it and they sure. and they they have so much material you know they can run with it yeah and i i got the sense as well that you were i mean obviously that there are there are flashes of hope within the movie which keep it you know which give you that that sense that there is and, and those flashes of hope come you know narratively as well but also through the the way that the 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 kids kind of act and the joy that they get from from each other but I really got a sense that you were trying to sort of say that you know there is so much talent and there is so much life that's being weighed down by systems and circumstances and poverty and all of the all of those kind, kinds of things was that sort of a, a key message that you want to say let's say you know very early on Teresa Rococo talked about and um, how much joy there had been in her in her um, childhood, despite kind of lots of difficult scenarios that she lived through and in her communities. And, and we also, it was so evident in our workshops and in sitting in schools, how much these kids, despite what's happening at home, you know, have fun and, and have moments of like hysterical laughter, whether it's in the dance class or in the food fight class, you know, we were seeing that kind of energy and that kind of buzziness um, all the time. Um, mm. And then we were belly laughing a lot in our workshops so it would have been kind of a travesty not to bring that yeah. into the film because that's the way they are 
you know, one minute something terrible can happen, and then they're finding the joke in it. And so, um, you know, it, we really, really wanted to show how that is true yeah. to their experience. The, the reality of a teenage girl fight is quite, is quite scary as well. Do you know what I mean? It's like, wow, they're, they're not holding back here. Oh uh, yeah, so that was the... oh, really they found that really easy to do. They okay. kind of... <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> just a couple of couple of more things before uh, let you go. Um, I, I just wondered, you know, do you see this this film in the in the kind of legacy of British social realism? Do you think, you know, do you like putting labels that on on films in in that way? Is that problematic to you, or is there a sense in which, yes, I understand that there's. Ken Loach and Mike Lee and 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 you know if you think about films that are coming out uh, like County Lines and Lynn and Lucy, you could argue that they sit within that kind of history, you know, British cinema history as well. I mean, all the time, you know, I think filmmakers are standing on the shoulders of other filmmakers and building on ideas that have come through film history. And um, we kind of felt in some ways we we're inventing the wheel in our workshop, but of course we absolutely weren't. And we were referring and building on a lot of techniques that have been used and ideas and, and, and themes that have been touched on by other filmmakers over the years, as you reference them, you know, from Ken Loach to Andrew Arnold, Lynn Ramsey, you know, and then contemporary filmmakers as well. I mean, more current filmmakers who are making films right now. So we we reference, I mean, I even rang up, you know, uh, Shane Meadows, producer, to talk about how they, in terms of cameras and te technique and process, how they captured um, their scenes. And that was very useful. You know, they use a lot of cameras. They, uh, you know, have long takes. And so that came from there. I, I talked to Lawrence Kante, who made the class about his process. I, you know, Lucy Pardy had worked with Andrew Arnold. Um, so was bringing in some of those ideas. So we were definitely um, indebted to all those filmmakers before. And Ken Loach, I've watched all his films over the years. And, mm. you know, Mark Lee and Stephen Frears and Terrence Davis. They're all in some ways fed in. And then there's also black filmmaking, you know, it was Horace Ove who made pressure in the yeah yeah in yeah. The so it was you know working with communities of non well of, of people who hadn't acted before and accessing those kind of communities, and we looked to European cinema and the girls and our, and the creative team all watched Divines the film oh, okay. by Amina, which I found really really sort of useful because it's mm. got a brilliant female friendship at the center of it. Um, I wondered if you've seen Caper Capernaum with Nadine Lebecki's film. I saw that after we'd shot. All oh, right. But I, I love that film. I mean, yeah. well, that is bloody genius, isn't it? God yes. knows how she made that with that baby. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's brilliant filmmaking there and so exciting. And world cinema, you know, another person that I looked to and I just did a sort of radio program about him with Francine um, Stock for the film program was um, Corrieda, yeah. um, you know, a Japanese filmmaker, and, and he, shoplifters came out while we were making, uh, while we were prepping um, rocks. And, you know, um, Nobody Knows was another film that's about children being abandoned. And he does this kind of hybrid of documentary and fiction, which I found really, really inspirational and useful yeah. as well. No, that's great. That's great. Um, so thank you so much. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time out to, to come on the show. That was absolutely wonderful. I've, I've, are you working on something as we speak? Have you got a version of a lockdown film coming out or are you just waiting for things to open up again? Well, it's interesting because, you know, putting out a film is such a, 
uh, interesting time because so much energy and focus, and particularly with this film, went into putting it out into the world. And you know, now it's on Netflix, and now it feels like it's sort of got its wings. Um, and but you know, supporting all the the young people through it and the creative team and working with them on that has taken up a lot of energy. And I realise that it's only now that I'm kind of allowing myself to have creative thoughts and sort of leave that baby a little bit behind and move on. Um, <laughs> But it's too early to, to talk about the next one, but I'll let you know when I know. <laughs> Great. Well, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thanks so much again for taking the time to come on The Cinematologist. Sarah Gavron. Thank you. Brilliant. So thanks again so much to, to Sarah for, for coming on. Um, we we got, got in contact over Twitter and, and uh, yeah, she was very generous with her, her time and talking about obviously a range of subjects as well as rocks but uh neil you we haven't discussed it because you only watched it last night so what did you make of the film awful hated it <laughs> no um, that wouldn't that be interesting actually? i know it would wouldn't it you know i'm sure one day it'll happen yeah uh, no i thought it was great um yeah i i was kind of bowled over by its energy um and mainly the energy i mean the energy of those, those characters as perf- you know the, the performances i thought were just wonderful and yeah just I just re- I was really I was just in it really quickly. I thought that the way yeah, that yeah. Uh, the, the way that we were introduced to those characters' lives was kind of effortless, and then just I was just on board. You know, I was just like interested, um, and it took it took quite a while. You know, before kind of a, a critical mindset kind of came in, and I was like, oh, you know, what, what do I think of this? And you know, because obviously, kind of talking about it, but it really did undo a lot of that stuff in particularly the opening sort of 20 minutes um and then obviously as things start to unravel for the lead character i just found it slowly more and more tense and more and more you know upsetting yeah. and more and more difficult but not in a not in a you know like oh, i can't bear to watch this but in a kind of human like this is just terrible you know um but it feels like yeah i know this happens and the fact that it happens is just overwhelmingly sad you know um similar to county lines that sense of like this you know you can't really deny that this is a story that so many children in the world face and it's you know and then by the time it gets towards the the endings um you know i just 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 in bits you know um you know because but then what but then the the last but hope as well isn't there? yeah because i think the last 15 minutes you know in terms of how the lead character rocks resolves the situation with her friends and then with her brother i won't say anymore because i think you know too many spoilers mm. but how that's resolved felt so yeah so right you know in terms of how kids young people kind of deal with the world and the fact that they have to deal with all that shite is awful you know but there is the 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 ability and the resilience to do that, I think, is is is, is kind of is kind of magnificent. Um, and the fact that you knew that these were young women who were not really actors, you know, and had built up, you could just feel they built up that relationship for the purpose of the film. I just thought it was really wonderful, um, and I love the ending. You know, I just thought yeah. not, again, it was like how many times have I seen this particular ending in a British movie? You know. But how does it still feel fresh and how does it feel like it's earned? You know, and I think that's the testament to the 
the making of the film and the way that yeah. you know the way that, that that Sarah as a as a filmmaker went in with a with the right idea of how to make the film you know and I think it's interesting you talked about mm-hmm. Suffragette you know which I haven't seen but it's obviously a very very different film you know and the ability of a filmmaker mm. to see actually this is the way this story needs to be told with these people you know I've just been reading a lot of Paolo Freer so kind of forgive yeah, me yeah, but yeah, the yeah, idea that, that you know but you know um, but I think it's interesting isn't it like is it are you telling the story for them or are you telling it with them and Rocks feels like a film where you genuinely feel like this is a story told with these yeah. these young women and that that's fantastic um yeah yeah I, th- I think that correlation again between the the two filmmakers of the films we focused on are both working with the the actors and with the writers and with the story and interestingly again one of the things about social realism again is and often it's probably kind of left to one side but that sense that the director is not an auteur and is part of the class struggle that he is representing and you know ken loach is the the key example of that i would say in terms of you know he's making his films from his own political conscience the thing that struck me the thing i liked about rocks the most i mean there's other elements in the other films that i I liked but in in rocks i love the relationship between the 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 girls and the way that that felt so authentic and like so say for example you know the characters in in lynn and lucy and how they interacted with each other i understand what who the characters were and and the way that they were with each other and the same with county lines you know the relationship between the mother and the son and uh, and and Simon as the as the sort of gangster character co- comes in as this charismatic guy. I understood. You know, it, it it was authentic enough. There was no, you know, it was it was not like it, it didn't work. It did work, but you could feel that these characters in Rocks would would go off set and would probably be more or less the same. Hmm. You know, and and the other thing I really liked was the the way in which the the violence was as upsetting, like like when they were in the house together and. And Rox had gone to her her Muslim best friend, her house, and had been taken in for the evening. And then they get into this argument, and they and it's proper. Well, if you don't if you don't need my help, why why are you in my house? Kind of stuff. And that's a different kind of upset and violence to say in, in county lines where the the you know, the drug dealer is beating up the the junkie, you know, mm. and it's absolutely brutal. Um, but there's a sense of oh god, that's really harsh. You know what I mean? And it's really yeah. violent in its own, in, in its own way. But and it's a I violence that it's a violence that you don't you that children should not have to participate yeah. in. No, you know I think absolutely. They when you hear that that argument and you hear what Rock says about how she understands her life, you're like that. No child should should ha- yeah. should have that understanding of that's you know it, it, yeah, yeah, it yeah, is yeah. it is violent and it is horrific you know because yeah. you're like this and and obviously because they're young people you know your children um they don't have the experience or even the, the critical function or the language to you know so it's so raw it's such mm. a raw emotional thing because they're, they're they're kind of doing things that they should never have to do but but certainly not for a few years you know those yeah. kind of adult understandings about how the world really works sure yeah, no, for sure. And, and I love how both films tap into this thing that I mentioned at the beginning, this sense of the dark side of entrepreneurialism as an ideology or a yeah. mindset. And I think it's it's so interesting. I was thinking about how much that is drilled into us as a, an aspiration. You know, the, 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 kid, the, 
the kid, the 16 year old kid who starts his own business and makes a million is a story that you see, you know, quite regularly. It's something that is covered on the news. And it's sort of like that idea of, oh, here's that person with get up and go who hasn't need to be helped, you know, which of course they have need to be, needed to be helped in when you actually get to grips with the story. But it's funny how the, that, that element of precarity is probably the underpinning sort of social politics that's commented upon directly. So Rox has to go and and, and you know, she wants to be a, a beauty therapist or, you know, do makeup, basically, and is trying to make some money on the side doing that. And it's riven through society, you know, more than we care to realize. If you think about the influencer phenomenon and zero hours contracts and the gig economy and even sort of Airbnb and Uber, rich, rich people, you know, renting out their rooms. And it's that sense of making you turning yourself into a business at any given moment, the sort of neoliberal aspect of that. And it really does relate to that sense, I think, in culture and society that we can't be, we can no longer be in, be guaranteed an institutionalized career and livelihood. That's a thing of the past now. And, you know, it, it's how long is it going to be, be before university lecturers are independent contractors? It's going to, it's coming, you know what I mean? If, yeah. if things don't change. So, and and, and that being the the reality of that for the two characters of having to having to sort of adopt that stance and even the 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 friend who is selling stuff in the playground you know what i mean it's always been used as a joke you know the 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 sort of kid who's got a little bit of a capitalist mindset it's sort of a cliche in a way but it's like everybody's kind of got to have their side hustle and it's it's burned into the psyche of these kids which is yeah, it's that's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um well, Thatcher was a grocer's daughter, so, you know. Um yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's 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 a prevalent part of Lynn and Lucy as well, isn't it? That you know, she needs the sure. work and she gets a job in this salon, but this salon is exactly what you're talking about, you know, the person who runs it is sees himself as an influencer, you know, it's all built around branding and brand identity and how you create yourself and stuff and 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 the character is obviously completely it, that's never going never going to fit you know it's not and then and obviously most people don't fit so what happens to those people who don't fit well they're just discarded you know and it's interesting yeah i remember a couple of years ago talking about the university and this like these ideas which are just rampant everywhere and there was a keynote speaker at a kind of staff staff conference staff training day who gave this whole spiel about bezos and was like you know you need to be more like bezos and the question obviously was like why do we need why do we need why is bezos a figure of you know you know adulation and worship like let's look at the practices of this man and you know labor practices and tax practices and like why why do you want us to emulate this you know and it's because it's about growth and it's about profit and it's about neoliberalism but it's interesting that that is the narrative everywhere and that was brought in as something we should aspire to and obviously you can imagine a room of academics kind of reacting to that um but but it, it, it <laughs> is absolutely the system and it goes back to what we were saying earlier that you know that these th- there's no and that that's probably different i think if you look at particularly things like long good friday or stormy monday in the early 80s and then sort of back to those kind of 60s british you know there is a kind of aspiration you know of kind of getting out of the class and and, and kind of yep. doing well and yep. you know kind of succeeding and breaking through the glass ceiling and that kind of thing but that's gone now you know in these films that has gone mm. you know um and even in you know even in bait as well you know like the the reality of life for the fishermen you know um up against the the kind of the 
the uh, the second home owning you know Londoners and stuff. It's 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 bleak. You know, it's there's no, you know, the mm. the ending of kind of of bait where, you know, I don't think it's a spoiler. You know, kind of back on the fishing boat. You know, you look at what's happening in the news with fishing in the last couple of weeks. You know, just phew, that is not yeah, that yeah, is yeah, not yeah. a victory. You know, that is not something that's going to end well or, or kind of lead to great things. Well, particularly since we've, we're not going to have, you know, that it doesn't matter how many British fish are caught in British waters with British boats. If they can't sell them to Europe, which is their biggest market, they're screwed. So, yeah, Brexit is going to is going to fuck fishermen as much as it fucks Sorry, Mark. Else. <laughs> I know you're probably sick of hearing how depressed it is. But um, no, but I think but I think I think that's an interesting shift about, like you say, that entrepreneurialism is rampant but mm. for these characters it's it, it's it, it's it's un, it's an unattainable you know like that they just have to get through the yeah, day yeah. and and feed their families and themselves and their kids who have to feed themselves and feed their families you know it's it's yeah it feels very close to home and it feels you know you look at the yeah, yeah. marcus rashford <laughs> you know the amount of people who don't eat yeah, you, yeah, you yeah. know um in this country is just astonishing when when the narrative is we can just be innovative and we can just be inf- yeah, oh, yeah. yeah anyway nearly went into a yeah yeah economy i mean just and yeah. All that. yeah but i mean i it, i think it what's interesting then it, it leads us to that maybe the, the sort of final point of and you raised it who is who is watching these films and do they have can they have an impact i mean what what i like about these films particularly in light of seeing the last couple of ken loach um, films which the, the i daniel blake I, I i quite liked but the the last one god what's the name of the last one sorry we missed you yeah but but sorry we missed you i found really clunky and really didactic and it's that sense of how does a film be socially relevant even campaigning without being didactic is that possible and if these if these films don't have an audience that goes beyond let's say a cinephile film studies student film festivals and you know middle class critics kind of you know boundary let's say if it ne- if it never goes any anywhere beyond that then you know it, is it is it just sort of you know middle class people like us talking to each other about how great this is at revealing how shit everything is yeah um that is a, a worry but i but to 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 end hopefully i think i think this is where streaming is of real value you yeah. know particularly netflix you know screening rocks you know um and and kind of making a big deal out of, out of it um and something like county lines being on on you know the bfi player and, and probably later stuff and the fact that when you start watching it it looks different you know it's got a it's got a it's got something about it which is not not like yeah a kind of poverty porn or kind of shaky handheld you know in your face shouty gangsters you know um so i think that i think that people's what people watch on streaming is probably broader because it's like tv it kind of goes back to what you're saying about mm. tv you know like you know there was a time when you know a mike lee play for today would be watched by a ton of people yeah this is the thing though yeah and and like i mean Again, maybe this is the part where we do we we might be able to have a bit of an argument, but it's like and, and again, it's, it, it, I hate to be the sort of cynic about this, but it relates to audiences and uh, is there a, a a kind of enough of a class consciousness anymore 
for this to be shown to a mainstream audience and not to be, well, why, why the hell am I watching this and not watching something that's entertaining? And, and you know, because it, 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 it relates to the ways in which we've been fed you know, the individualized mindset in, in, you know, for years and years and years. And that, the idea that people don't recognize themselves in that situation anymore. What they recognize is that, oh, but, the, you know, no matter what my situation is, that's not me because I'm a, I'm a rich person. I'm a successful person waiting to happen. You know, it's that sense of why do, why do all the Americans vote for, vote for a billionaire, vote for, yeah. for Trump, who's never going to be in their interests because they're, they're all millionaires in waiting. And do we have the capacity for this to, to 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 chime with people's experience in the way that we hope it would do, I think I think yes, but maybe right. not at the same scale yep. that it might once because of the way stuff is consumed. And I I think that you know you look at the way when I watched Rocks on Netflix, I was like, oh, this is this is billed as a teen movie, you know. And like I think the first kind of twenty minutes or so, yeah, it's a knockabout, you know, group of girls and at school, you yep. know, life's a bit tough at home, but it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't present itself. Netflix doesn't present it that way, and it doesn't present itself as, you know, a really, really hard piece of work. It kind of, it lures you into that, and I think that there's enough in it, particularly towards the end as well. I think if you stick with it, I think that, and I think people will because I think it's, yeah, it's it's in, it's really engaging, particularly with those characters, and I think County Line's quite similar. There's a, there's a grimy neon layer to it, which I think yeah. might just keep more people who aren't going to read reviews and they aren't they aren't going to know that it's not for them they're just going to see it on their menu sure. with a cool poster and go oh I'll give this a go yeah and i think they look different enough that i think more people will stick with it the problem is you know which is is what happens then well you know is it are they, is it going to go into their bubble where either people have already seen it or it's a kind of it's only ever going to reach another 20 people but that's a problem of you know yeah fractured audiences really yeah across the board. you know yeah. but but I, I i and i also think that you know the bfi as much as it is our kind of central state funding agency for film i think that they they obviously feel like there's there's a desire to see it because they have to make them they have to make some money you know yeah. they're, they're not commercially you know so i think that they and i think as well having been involved in some of the regional sort of stuff i think that there are enough cinemas around the country that will show it, that will that will justify, and there will be you know look at what's been playing well at, at home and, and and watershed and showroom and stuff, you know that that there is an audience for that you know um, and that's what people are going out to see ironically even if they are middle class because you know if you're going to stay at home you're going to watch The Crown so you're going to go out for something a bit different and this feels like cinema it, it feels like British cinema as well yeah. in a way that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it hasn't been for a while. Yeah. Great. Yeah, that will do it for today's episode. Um, I really recommend that you go out and see all of these movies. We'll put links up to the ones that, we, that we've that we seen and we recommend. But obviously, County Lines and Rocks being at the, the top of that list. Thanks, yep. very much to, thanks very much to Sarah and to Henry for their time again. Neil, great to talk to you as usual. You too, mate. Lovely way to start the weekend. Indeed, uh, get some rest and we'll be back on it again uh, very soon. Yeah, and thanks to our continued support. New Patreon subscribers, two or three of those have uh, come on board. So we thank you very much for that. Get all our bonus material and our monthly newsletters through our Patreon account. If you can find the time just to retweet our shows, if you like them, particularly, you know, um, Twitter is the main one. 
Facebook is rubbish because of the analytics, but it's the only way really that we can get the, the episode to be out there for more people. So the more that you can share across your networks, we really appreciate that. And if you know, if you really if you really want to help us out, then a review on iTunes is always is always fantastic. And we'll always sort of read those out and dissect them when somebody leaves us as a review. So we appreciate that. We'll see you next time. This has been the Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>